All right. Uh, as we get cooking, just before I do, I was reminded, uh, actually during my prayer when I prayed that we wouldn't be focused on our Super Bowl snacks, that t- next week we have a Super Bowl, of course. Does anybody care anymore about the Super Bowl? I know, the Chiefs aren't going to be in it, so you're all disappointed, I'm sure of that. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I don't know who I'm going to root for yet. But there is one thing that you can do which will make a difference uh, next week. Uh, we always have a little bit of a, a wager uh, here at Crosswalk, kind of. Uh, about uh, which team you're more rooting for. And the, the way you place a bet is with your canned food. Did we talk about this, Dar? Okay, good. Uh, I didn't want to be redundant while I was getting my microphone. Uh, so anyway, um, we're going to have a table set up, uh, one for the Cincinnati Bengals and one for the L.A. Rams. And whichever team you're betting on or hoping will win, uh, you put your canned goods on that table. Does that make sense? If you don't care, then split them up or load one up. I, I don't care. And I did find out from Kerry this week that they are an, an especial, they are especially in need of, <laughs> there we go, chili and soups. So if you can be rock stars on chili and soups, I know I'm going to be heading to Costco and just grab one of those 12 packs or whatever. Uh, if you can help us out with that, that helps them out a lot. A lot. You may not know, but uh, COVID changed the way we do our food pantry uh, system. And uh, Carrie and Linda have been fantastic in continuing figuring out how we can serve uh, those in need in Napa. And what we do is we specialize uh, with a very niche group of people who either can't take advantage of the other food services available in Napa or the food services that are available in Napa uh, don't really have uh, the kinds of food that meets their needs or not delivered in the right way. Uh, So we service about 20 households uh, every week or so. every month, um, and not just with one bag of food, but with multiple bags of food and deliver it to their door. I mean, it's pretty awesome uh, what this group does. So a little quick thanks to uh, Carrie and Linda. So continue to be awesome uh, with that. Okay, let's bring up my stuff. So that's next week, bring that. Uh, Go ahead and bring up my slides, uh, Dar. Uh, I'm starting a new series today called Renewing Faith. And this is going to dovetail with a course I've taught a couple times before, which is a a core course here uh, called Experiencing the Heart of Christianity based on this book, The Heart of Christianity by Marcus Borg. Uh, If you've not taken it before, I highly recommend it. It's going to be at 12 o'clock on Wednesdays and 7 o'clock on Wednesdays. And I intend to do them both hybrid. Uh, so uh, Wednesday night, if you really want to come, I got to know that you really want to come because uh, sometimes that group uh, kind of fades off after a while and I don't want to waste your time or my time. Uh, I could count on the 12 o'clock group. So if you're committed, it's a 12-week commitment. We're going to be literally going through chapter at a time of this book. Uh, and it's very, very good. Uh, what it's helpful with uh, is in the deconstruction and reconstruction process, which I'll explain a little bit. Um, we are living in a very interesting time in uh, world and theological history. Uh, there was a church historian uh, years ago in a book. She said uh, that about every 500 years, uh, the church has a garage sale. It just seems to be the way uh, the flow works. About every 500 years, there's a shift in uh, major theological perspectives in Christendom. And we're right on that. In fact, we've been riding this wave of change uh, for several decades now. Uh, But about 500 years ago, uh, there were decisions made within the church, capital C, uh, that made sense at that time, but now have 
come to a time where a lot of people are looking at some of those positions which they thought were always there, but really weren't there, especially dealing with how we approach the Bible and the nature of God and these kinds of things. And they're looking at what was decided on 500 years ago, and they're saying to themselves, I can't live with that. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. And if I have to live with that, if that's, if that's the only way to think about the faith, then I'm not going to do it. And so in an unprecedented number of cases, people in the United States are fleeing the church. And they're not just leaving church, they're leaving faith. That's a problem. Uh, and so uh, a course like this and a book like this helps us examine uh, what has been and what's emerging. And so we'll be looking at what has earlier Christianity given us, and what is emerging Christianity saying as a different option for things? And so it's a very, very helpful course. And if you, even if you've taken it before, I encourage you to go through it again because we never read the same book twice. <laughs> you never take the same course twice because you're a different person when you take it and we're at a different time when we take it. So I've taught this uh, book before and talked this uh, through before. You can hunt this down on our website if you want, uh, where I go really, really close uh, with the chapters. I'm going to more dovetail with it this time. So we're going to look at some scriptures that are so, somewhat related to the, to the theme. So you're going to be getting complimentary type things. Uh, but if you really want uh, the sermon series on experiencing the heart of Christianity, look it up uh, on our YouTube channel or on the website, and you can, you can find that. And if you take the class... Uh, I will give you um, like the podcast link or the blog link uh, that has that. So you can listen to it if you want to uh, during the week. If you have trouble sleeping, the podcast is really, really helpful. So, so we're going to talk about the 500-year garage sale and uh, ask the question, what's working? Uh, what do we want to keep? And what's not working? And this is not done in a reckless fashion. It's very thoughtful and understanding where some of these ideas came from. And do we agree with those ideas? Discovering what is really uh, essential for the faith. And really, uh, the goal, uh, that's the question, is what is the goal? Well, the goal is a relationship with God, a robust relationship with God that not only changes and transforms your life, but changes and transforms the world in redemptive ways. Uh, if, if you and I are not becoming more <laughs> uh, in likeness of Jesus, and in the Christian tradition particularly, something's wrong. And if if the greater world around us looks at the church, capital C, and has a hard time seeing the loving, graceful Jesus that is represented in Scripture, something's wrong. And so the goal is for us to become more and more uh, like Jesus, who we claim to follow in, the, in our Christian tradition. So we're going to be taking a look at what is faith, the Bible, God, Jesus, uh, and some of the other things. What does it mean to be born again? What is the kingdom of God all about? Uh, what is this other fine print I have up there? Thin, space, thin places, that has to do with spirituality and sin and salvation, what that's all about. Uh, and it's really, really good, and I hope that you'll take it. On the next slide, uh, I was introduced to this person yesterday in our uh, Black History Month uh, virtual event. This guy's name is Dr. Charles Richard Drew. He is the son of Richard and Nora Drew, uh, who were middle-class people, um, he was, uh, his father, uh, Richard, uh, was in uh, the flooring industry, and he laid down carpet uh, in the, D, uh, the Washington, D.C. area. 
they lived uh, in an area called Foggy Bottom, which always makes me giggle a little bit. Uh, my wife says I resemble that on occasion, so I'm not sure what that means, but anyhow. Um, and in that particular time, it was an integrated uh, community. And so uh, when Richard went to school, his mother, by the way, was trained as a teacher. They were middle class, uh, and the school that he went to was integrated and reflected uh, middle class kinds of support. And so he did well. He got a really good education at this particular high school uh, in the D.C. area. He went to college at Amherst in Massachusetts. Uh, he applied to three different medical schools, uh, was admitted to Harvard, uh, but for a range of reasons, he wasn't going to be able to start for another year, and he wanted to get uh, moving on his medical degree, so he went up to Quebec and uh, went to the McG uh, McGill um, Medical School up there. Uh, he was a great uh, ac academic. Uh, he was an Alpha Omega scholar, which is reserved for only the higher echelon uh, of scholars in terms of their GPA and all that. After that, he went for a postdoctorate work at Columbia University, which if you're familiar with universities, that's, that's a very significant school uh, up until now uh, and still uh, going forward. But throughout his life, uh, he came across some challenges, and so it eventually left him uh, in a disagreement with the American Red Cross, which he left in protest. And the reason he left the American Red Cross and disassociated with them as he protested on the way out is the same reason why he was not allowed into the American Medical Association. And that reason is because he was black. He was an African-American, uh, born and raised in our nation's capital. The reason I asked you if you've ever donated blood, and so many of you did, uh, you owe a debt of gratitude, or actually the people you donated for, owe this guy a debt of gratitude because it was his research and development that helped us discover how uh, to uh, store and transport blood. It used to be that the only way you could get a blood transfusion is in the moment, and you had to go to a hospital in the moment and get the blood right then and there practically because the shelf life of blood uh, was very limited. But because of his research and what he came up with, uh, we were able to store blood and, and source it differently and be able to ship it where it needed to be. Now, look at when he lived, 1904 to 1950. Can you think of a particular application that that information and that research and that development may have been very, very helpful for in our world history? World War, well, World War II in particular is by the time he was able uh, to develop, develop this stuff. So we don't know how many countless lives his research facilitated on the battlefield during World War II in Europe, and yet in his own uh, company um, of his own peers, the celebrated doctor wasn't celebrated the way he should have been. And he left the American Red Cross because the American Red Cross, despite scientific research to the contrary, did not allow integrated blood in the blood bank. They thought there was black blood and non-black blood, even though this researcher said, that's nonsense. Isn't that awful? And yet, isn't it also inspiring that we have this guy who grew up 
uh, in this kind of environment uh, and was able to do some life-changing things, world-changing things that we're still appreciative of. Raises all kinds of questions like, well, first of all, that's really cool that he was able to do that. And have any of you, had any of you heard of this guy before? I had never heard his name that I remember anyway before. And that raises an interesting question, especially from a guy <laughs> who's donated a lot of blood and a lot of platelets. I mean, a lot. You know, I'm one of their, I'm, I'm like on their speed dial, you know. Uh, it's been really annoying, you know, <laughs> throughout COVID when I don't feel comfortable uh, going yet. But um, how is it that I did not know this? And a lot of it has to do with how history is written and who is telling history and who is being celebrated in history. And the truth is, in our country, um, there are many, many pioneers in many fields, pioneers that were African-American, that has never got their due credit because they were African-American or other persons of color. So each week, I'm going to be highlighting uh, one. And that was one of the coolest parts of that presentation, is just one after another after another of people who made a huge difference. So that's one question is why haven't we heard these people is because the people who were in charge of the publications, the people who were char in charge of what was going to be presented to us made a decision that this is what is going to matter. This is what is going to be taught and learned. And that's a problem. And then we might wonder, how come we're not seeing uh, more people like Charles Richard Drew? You know, why can't, why can't there be more of that in our world when it seems like uh, you know, in terms of the media and what we see and how things are represented, it seems like, seems like our African-American neighbors, you know, really struggle, you know, to have this be normative. So that raises lots of other questions. How was it that this guy in the early 1900s was able to climb into that uh, echelon, was able to, to move in to those arenas? And what was involved in that? It makes us wonder. What, what is the socioeconomic foundation? How does that play a role in a person's capacity to climb the rungs of academia? And what does it mean if you're in a, a school district that actually can fund um, itself and its curriculum and its teachers? And what does it mean if you're black and you are in an integrated school? What does that afford you in terms of a good education? What does it mean that his, uh, that his neighborhood that he grew up in was also uh, supportive of him as a person of color? How do all of these things work together to provide a foundation that allowed him to be successful? And is it possible that his situation, his experience is not normative in the United States because of decisions that other people made long before you and I drew our first breath? that are still causing problems today. It's an inspiring story. It's also one that makes us ask more questions. Like what enabled this life to happen? What did he go through knowing uh, what he was up against? How did he do it? And how did he keep doing it? Well, he's not alone. If we go back a lot further, we're actually going to see three stories today. Pretty rapidly, I'm not going to spend too much time on on any of these three, but I want you to hear their story. And the first one comes in the next slide. This goes back to the year 740-ish ish, um, BC or BCE, before Common Era. And this comes from Isaiah chapter 6. 
It was in the year King Uzziah died. That was in 740 BCE that I saw the Lord. This is Isaiah, son of Amos, by the way. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah is having a vision of God. We don't know if he's in a dream state or in some kind of ecstatic, spiritual, mystical state, but he's having this, this vision, seeing God on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, It's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips. He was a sailor, apparently, and I live among a people with filthy lips, yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. It was assumed that God and God's holiness had no room for anything imperfect. And so if anybody with blemish would dare present themselves in the holy chamber of God, they were done for. That's the way the ideas worked back then. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am send me. So you've got this guy, Isaiah, son of Amos, grew up somewhere around Jerusalem, probably in Jerusalem. And he senses this experience of God that absolutely blows his mind. The way he thinks about God is radically altered. He experiences the grace of God redeeming him and his fear. He finds out he's actually loved by God and wants God to do something. So the question, uh, who's out there? It's not so that... Like some of you by the third question I asked, who's done whatsoever, who's, who likes whatever, it's not so he cannot raise his hand. The question is for him to wonder in, in, in respect of all that you've just experienced, Isaiah, who, who will go for me? Who will go and do what I need done? And he can't do anything other than respond, here I am, send me. Uh, that sending, by the way, was a mixed bag. In the ancient prophetic tradition, uh, they were often deliverers of bad news. In fact, this verse goes on. It's not on the screen today, but goes on saying, you go in and preach to them. Uh, it's not going to go well. You got to change stuff up. It is not, you keep on this direction. It's not going to end well. Listen, God is saying there's a shalom that you need to follow. You're not on the path of shalom. When you're not on the path of shalom, it's going to, the wheels are going to come off the bus. But God tells Isaiah, but when you say this, I know they're not going to listen. In fact, you go ahead and tell them. Uh, I'm going to tell you, but you're not going to listen because you've decided for yourself already what the truth is. And so that kind of bad news bearing was part of the prophetic tradition. But there was also the good side too. The good side was always sort of cloaked in, but if you'll turn, if you'll repent, if you'll come back to the ways of Shalom, if you come back to God, then God will surely be with you and surely redeem you, which happened time and time again.
Okay, so that's story number one. That's 740 years-ish before Jesus was even born. Now we go to Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, one day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, also known as Simon Peter, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. Tons of people wanted to hear him. The only way he could keep their distance and have a good audience and a good uh, amphitheater was to push off a little bit. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. In other words, go fishing again, Peter, after you've just come in from your night of fishing, try it again. Master, Simon replied, we were taught all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat. And soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. <laughs> when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. Does that sound familiar to Isaiah? I'm a man of sinful lips. Please leave me. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with them. They sensed that God was present in a very powerful way. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. So here we have another character set of people who are experiencing the power and the presence of God in a way that they would not have anticipated, but they fully understood. Isaiah had his dream, his vision, whatever that was, and it rocked his world, and he knew uh, what was going on, and he heard the call, and he said yes. And now we have the fishermen who uh, who saw this thing, they were either really lousy fishermen, you know, and didn't have their fish finder with them that day, but whatever, they go back out and they find out that, that they just got this massive haul. And you got to understand what that means for a very poor fishing village. It means they just made a lot of money that day. It also meant this village of very, very, very poor people just got a lot of food. This was an abundance, <laughs> not just for a few guys to make a few bucks. This was an abundance for the poor of the poor. That's a beautiful thing. Peter and his friends, his brothers, friends, fellow fishermen, they look at this and they're in awe. They've experienced God in a way that for them was undeniable. And they hear Jesus say, the voice of God coming through Jesus, come and follow me. And they said, yes, left their old way behind for a new chapter in their life to do kind of the same thing that Isaiah was called to do, fishing for people. Now, this fisherman of men thing, um, that's been made real tacky uh, by our uh, evangelical tradition of which our church was a part and kind of makes people skin crawl uh, when they hear this word. You know, uh, the resource that I sent you this week, if you're on my secret pastor email <laughs> uh, and you got the Salt Project commentary, I had an interesting thing. I'd never heard this before, but that idea of fishing for people, um, that was used in the Old Testament, but it was used as bad news. 
It was like, well, we're going to fish for people to smack them around a little bit and let them know, you know, that they're toasts, you know, kind of in a judgmental kind of a thing. But in Jesus' frame of reference, he's saying, well, you know, we're going to put the good news out there, which is going to be a contrast to the bad news. So we're going to put a different, newer way out there that is the way of wholeness and health, well-being, which is the essence of salvation. All these things we're going to put out there, and people are going to recognize that that may not be the path that they're on. And so while we're, while we're proclaiming this good news, it inherently is going to help people realize, I need to embrace this because I'm not yet. And when they do, this fishing thing is not for the sake of judgment, but for redemption. That's a real shift. Jesus isn't coming to beat people up. He's calling people to draw them in to the arms of God. And these disciples just experienced this very thing. Uh, they thought they were toasts because they had a mouth like a sailor. <laughs> you know, they were fishermen. And believe it, they, they lived like fishermen. Uh, and yet they were welcomed by God. That's story number two. Story number three, we move a little bit further down the timeline, and now we're somewhere, uh, let's see, if my memory serves, I think 1 Corinthians was written somewhere uh, in the 50s AD, somewhere in that neck of the woods, or 50s common era. So this is Paul writing uh, to the Corinthian church. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the Twelve, and after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me, and not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. I'm sure the other apostles really appreciated that. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate you. Uh, I've worked harder than any other apostles, yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach, for we all preach the same message you have already believed. So what do we have here? We have Paul, and if you're not familiar with his story, he's literally on the way to a city called Damascus, uh, where he is going to round up these Jesus followers to take them back to Jerusalem to put them on theological trial, uh, which actually carried weight. They could be imprisoned, they could be beaten up, maybe even killed if they'd gotten too carried away with their Christianity. He was all for it. He was the ringleader of it. He's the guy that got special permission, got the papers to go do it. On his way there, he experiences God. He experiences the risen Christ, not in the flesh and blood, but in a very mysterious way as a bright, shining light that blinds him, literally. Now, we don't know if his eyes were literally blinded or if the experience of him having this encounter <laughs> where he's literally stopped in his tracks and called to turn it around, if that just so shocked him 
that other things involved in his physical makeup restricted his sight. We'll never know. But we do know what happened. As it brought him to his knees, he had some rethinking and retooling to do. And then he understood that in that experience, there was also a call to go forward, to do what God was inviting him to do. And he did it. Three different characters, all experiencing God and God's grandeur in ways that they can appreciate and understand, ways that transformed them immediately and knew that they had experienced God. And in that experience, they experienced the redemptive nature of God. So God was loving with them right then and there. But they also recognized that there was an inherent call on them to do something with and in response to what just happened in their lives. This was not going to be a benign encounter for any of them. This was a life-altering encounter. They could no longer be who they were in the same way. This changed everything. Once you see something so profound, you are not the same anymore. These three characters, each in their own way, experienced something so profound. They were not the same. And they moved forward saying yes again and again. And because they did, we are here now. Which takes us to the, last, to the next screen, almost the last screen. We got three characters with varying expectations, three humbling experience of God, three invitations to trust and follow. And to me, this raises questions for you and me. The first is, how has your identity shaped your expectations? Because none of these guys expected God to do this. And yet at the same time, you are made in such a way that I believe that God will come and meet us uh, based on who we are. And so being aware of our own identity and how we understand ourselves actually helps us experience God more, not less. So that leads us to the next question is, how are you recognizing God? You know, I think one of, the, one of the tragedies of our time, and maybe this is just human nature, it feels per, more pronounced right now. Just, I talk to so many people who just are in despair, and maybe it's because we have these little screens in front of us that remind us of all the bad stuff going on in the world and all the gloom and doom that it just feels like the whole world's caving. It feels like it's getting worse and worse, even though statistically, globally, we know that even though it's not nearly as fast as we want, but Actual improvements have been made over time for all of humanity. It, it has improved, but we hear so much about what's bad that we fail to see what's good, and we fail to see even the God that is right in front of us all the time. I wonder if we can really believe that God comes in and is really with us and present in a panentheistic kind of way. I wonder if that's really, really true enough that we would believe it and actually start looking for it. And I wonder if we would be still enough, filter out the noise around us to recognize just how much more good and life and God is in our world, dwarfing all that is bad and negative and harmful because it's true. Uh, one of the guys that I read very frequently uh, he actually quotes from the Buddhist tradition, but he says, you know, if you've got a good tree in front of you, you've got the best teacher for the rest of your life. 
And what he's saying with that is <laughs> creation itself tells its own story about life, about the presence that created it, your own body. You just look at your hands for a moment. <laughs> just look at these things. Do you have the capacity to squeeze your hands? Can you do that? I'm not, not seeing people do this. Yeah, you look kind of creepy doing that, so maybe you shouldn't do that. <laughs> How are you doing that? How are you doing this? Did you consciously say to yourself, okay, brain, I want you to send signals into whatever else is involved here to make my hands do this. You're doing this. Blood is coursing through your veins. We're not even sure how we know a lot about how the body works, but we're not exactly sure why. <laughs> we're not exactly sure why the spark is there in the first place. You are amazing. You are an example of the very presence of God. And if we believe that the presence of God truly is everywhere, you need nothing more than just to be still and to breathe and to listen. And if that freaks you out, and take a walk outside and look around. And if that doesn't do it for you, think about love and the people that you love and the people that love you. Before too long, I think you're going to start seeing God more and more and more. And the more you do, the more you're going to agree with me that the presence of God and all that is good and lovely <laughs> far outshines the contrary. It is there. And when you do get to that space, and we all struggle with this. I struggle with this. Staying in that zone where our eyes are fashioned to see the presence of God with us at all times. But when we are, we also cannot miss the inherent invitation that we are invited to respond to this incredible thing that we are in this God who is all around us and within us, loving us in ways we never even realized because we're too blind and too busy to see it, but always at work around us and in us. And when we come to grips with just how incredible that is and how lovely it is, it is not benign on us. It calls us forward. It calls us wooing us forward, not saying, well, you better go out and do this or else but because love naturally, naturally draws us forward. It reminds me of a caricature. Actually, Tom Ord talks about this uh, in his love chapter in uh, his Open and Relational Theology uh, book, <laughs> where he starts off the love chapter. He says there's this, there's this meme that's out there um, kind of poking fun at, at a, an image of Jesus. And he's standing at the door uh, knocking. And this comes from the book of Revelation. And Jesus, you know, uh, he's, he's knocking. And the person on the other side of the door says, who is it? And Jesus says, well, it's me, Jesus. I've come here to save you. And the person on the other side of the door says, save me from what? And Jesus says, from what I'm going to do to you unless you open this door. <laughs> well, this, <laughs> this, is not, this is not the tone or the heart of God. The heart of God is saying, I love you. I've been loving you your whole life. There are people in this world that need to know they're loved because love will make all the difference. And we don't beat it into people. We don't scare it into people. We love it into people. So will you be one of those people 
who has been so captured by the love of God that you can't not be an agent now of what God is wanting to do in the world, in a world that so desperately needs it. Do you get what you get to do? <laughs> do you see this invitation? It has to be related to what we saw in this remarkable character that I started with, Charles Richard Drew, who is a black man living in a country that has mixed feelings about his research, or at least about the one who's doing the research. Grateful for the product, not so grateful for the source. What was it that kept him in the game? Why didn't he just throw up his hands and say, forget it, I'm keeping this news to myself, or I'm just going to keep this to the black community? <laughs> because it was life. He knew it would save lives. He knew this is why he went into this. And so even though there was pressure against him, even though it was very difficult and very disheartening at times, and I'm sure there were days that he just wanted to tell everybody to go fly a kite and just bury his head in the sand, he didn't. Because he knew there was a greater call on his life that was bigger than the racism that was trying to keep him down. Sometimes you and I, we know that we're called to do this lovely thing, this shalom thing, and we get ourselves into it, and then all of a sudden it becomes difficult or hard, disheartening, and we think to ourselves, I don't know if I should keep doing this anymore. We need to remind ourselves of just how much greater is the love of God and how powerful the love of God is in our own life and in the world that we see the darkness seeming encroaching, encroaching in, that the light will always outshine that darkness. And we get to be a part of that. I don't know what the call of God is for you specifically. Probably none of you, maybe so, who knows? Maybe, maybe you'll be an Isaiah. You'll be one of those great prophets that people hundreds from years of now will be reading about. Maybe, that'd be pretty neat. But I have a hunch that most of us, are just more on the daily level of doing incredible things. Incredible things of God that really, really matter. Incredible acts of love. Instead of just blowing off your neighbor when you go in to get your trash can, how about initiating saying good morning or hello or how are you doing? Same thing when you go to um, get your cup of coffee. I was outdone a couple of weeks ago. It really made me mad. Some guy beat me to the punch with the clerk, asking them how their day was. And I was like, he stole my line. What are you doing? But you know, you, when you are just kind, when you are just a person that is lovely, <laughs> it has the capacity to change a day for somebody. And you know what also happens when we start being love in the world in real ways? And these are so easy to do and what I'm talking about. You actually, you actually are a beneficiary of serving others in those ways. We don't do it for that. In fact, if we do it for that, it actually backfires. We don't feel any more love. We feel like we've been taken advantage of when we do nice things for other people, thinking that's just what we're supposed to do. But when we are motivated and captured by the love of God, and we just simply do what love is calling us forward to do, the source is endless, and the return is tenfold. Maybe for you, it's trying to repair a bridge in a relationship, or a relationship has gotten a little weird, and so it's time for you to reach out, and, and you want to be the one that, that extends the olive branch. Maybe for you, it's reconnecting with somebody, but somebody's just popped into your head, and you're like, ah, I haven't thought about that person for years. I'm just going to reach out. 
And when you do, you're probably going to make their day. Maybe for you, it's standing up for somebody who doesn't have a voice, something very significant uh, in our culture, because you have a voice and other people don't have a voice. Maybe for you, uh, the loving thing is to take a look at how you're managing your life, and you can recognize that there, there are resources that you have of time and money and skill set and all that, where you can do something of great value for others that you hadn't considered yet. But now you see, now you have an experience. God is around us, with us, loving me all the time. It's unconditional. It's forever. How can I respond with this? How can I use this to make the world better? And when you do, oh, what a difference it makes. That's where the difference happens. And so today, as we start on this renewing faith, let's remember that that is the whole point. (laughs) That is what we're about, is being the people who have fallen in love with a God who loved us first and are figuring out ways to let the world know that we found the love of our life and you're not going to shut us up and we're going to keep talking about it and doing it because it is life itself. That's some powerful stuff. And that's where we're going in the next 12 weeks. I want to finish with you today. Uh, We're going to, I want to lead you in a prayer. Um, but then we're going to pray this prayer on the next slide. We'll get there in just a moment, uh, every week uh, for the next 12 weeks, uh, until, uh, until we're done with the series. But before we get to that, um, let me just guide you through a little closing meditation to see if God is messing with you in any way. So why don't you pray with me? So God, uh, as our eyes are closed and as we quiet down once again, How are we hearing you today? Crosswalk, have you heard? Have you heard that God loves you, adores you, would do anything for you to show you that love and already has? Did you know that maybe unbeknownst to you, God has been supporting your health and your well-being your entire life? That there have been times in your life where you, you may not have even believed in God, but God was believing in you and supporting you, giving you strength when you didn't know you needed it, giving you grace so that you could live with yourself and other people. Don't you know how much God loves you? Don't you know how big God's love is in the world and in your life? Own it. See it. Is there anything happening in you that may be God's nudge about ways to respond to this great love? to think about your next steps just a little more, I don't know, love-influenced? Is there someone you need to call or write or email? Is there a neighbor you haven't touched base with? Is there a family member that you need to check in on, a friend? Is there something about your own life you need to work on? that you've been kind of in denial about? 
but the love of God is saying, hey, let's take the risk and mature through this thing? Is there, is there an area of your life where pride has gotten in the way and has kept you from doing the loving thing? What's your nudge? Because I'm confident that God is always, always inviting us to live and respond in love. And so, God, um, we thank you for being here before us, loving us before we knew it. We thank you that your love, your creative energy, all of these things, all these words that can't quite capture just (laughs) the majesty of who you are, the expansiveness of who you are. We just thank you that you are. And that over time, the theme, the major theme is that you are love, loving, and lovely. That you're with us and for us, wooing us forward. May we sense your invitation. And may we say yes. And now, congregation, I invite you to open your eyes and let's, let's finish up with this prayer that's on the screen. The Prayer of Jesus by Jim Cotter. Say it out loud with me. Eternal spirit, earth maker, pain bearer, life giver, source of all this is and that shall be, father and mother of us all, loving God in whom is heaven. The hallowing of your name echo through the universe. The way of your justice be followed by peoples of the world. Your heavenly will be done by all created beings. Your commonwealth of peace and freedom sustain our hope and come on earth. With the bread we need for today, feed us. In the hurts we absorb from one another, forgive us. In times of temptation and test, strengthen us. From times too great to endure, spare us. From the grip of all that is evil, free us. For you reign in the glory of the power that is love now and forever. Amen. Thank you for being here. I hope you had a good experience. Hope you experienced God, and we will see you next week. Thanks for coming.